Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. It's Freddie Prinze Jr. and Jeff Dye back in the ring. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. Hey, Jeff. Are you ready to rumble our way into an all-new season of Wrestling with Freddie? You better believe I have. I've been practicing my body slams, and I'm jacked. All right, don't go injuring yourself now. We'll be highlighting the best stories and matches of the week in wrestling from AEW, WWE, and have one-on-one talks with the best talents in the world of pro wrestling. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You are listening to The Dan Patrick Show on Fox Sports Radio. We made it to a Friday somehow. Welcome to the program, Dan and the Danettes, Dan Patrick Show. In case you're wondering, yes, it is a meat Friday. We have a new chef today, Dylan, who does graphics, also part of our gambling podcast, and he's taking over for Tyler, who's out this week. Roasted leg of lamb, oysters, Rockefeller, Watermelon and arugula salad. Who has it better than we do? No. Nobody. Nobody. Yeah, Paul. What is your overall level of confidence in Dylan, as you know him, taking over the uh, cooking situation? I was here yesterday afternoon, late yesterday afternoon. Dylan was there busy preparing the watermelon and arugula salad. And I said, um, you know what you're doing? He goes, my mom's a pretty good chef. And I go, a chef or a cook? Or just a mom. And he goes, hmm, she's a good mom. And uh, I said, okay, that's all I need. Look, nobody knew Tyler could do this. All he did was take care of my puppy in the morning, and all of a sudden he took over the cooking responsibilities. Yes, he. I think we're underappreciating Dylan as the renaissance man that he is. <laughs> that's a fella, I feel like he's a little bit like the wolf. Wait, in, wait. Uh, in Pulp Fiction? In Pulp Fiction. I feel like he's a guy who... Any situation, he's like, oh, yeah, I can probably figure that out. Okay. Let's also factor this in. He's also the same guy who got a RoboCop tattoo on his bicep a couple of weeks ago and an oyster on his uh, Case in point. Uh, yeah. Without losing a bet. It was a choice. Yes. A conscious choice. Yeah, because I thought, what happened? He goes, oh, I, I don't know. We just decided to get tattoos. I said, did you lose a bet? He goes, no, no, no. Just, you ever just... seen that movie? Sick. <laughs> I could summarize a guy like this. He does not own a pair of socks. Winter, fall, any time of year. True story. New t-shirts there. We got a couple of Marvin-inspired t-shirts, danpatrick.com. Also, the uh, fifth times a charm t-shirt, only available until uh, next Tuesday with the sports Emmys. 
uh, Father's Day t-shirt there. You can go to danpatrick.com and uh, pick up those t-shirts and more. Also, National Dog Rescue Day, and we've got a sale on danpatrick.com. 20% off all the dog treats that we have. And also, we have uh, donated to uh, some of the rescue sites. Penny's Bang Biscuits, our way to support those organizations. We got a play of the day, stat of the day, poll question, all of that forthcoming. Phone calls, welcome, 877 3DP Show. Email address, dp at danpatrick.com. Twitter handle at DP Show. Say good morning to Peacock. Those watching, you can download the app. You can watch this program all three hours. We say good morning to our radio partners, Fox Sports Radio, iHeartRadio, and the other great radio stations around America. Celtics rolled the heat last night. Mavericks and the Warriors game two coming up tonight. We talked a lot about this story yesterday with Nick Saban, Jimbo Fisher, Deion Sanders. The SEC says, we're going to reprimand you. We'll recap the day yesterday and where they go. I got the point spread for Alabama and Texas A&M. DraftKings sent me the point spread when they meet in October. (laughs) Does anybody want to take a guess? Alabama's going to host Texas A&M. In October, if I gave you the over-under, I'm going to give you the over-under at 12 and a half. 12 and a half. Closest, closest to the pin, eats first today. Fritzy, I'll start with you. The over-under, or I should say the uh, point spread, Alabama is favored by how much? This, according to DraftKings, October 8th, A&M plays Alabama and Tuscaloosa. I'm going to say six and a half. Six and a half. Seton O'Connor. That was going to be my guess. I'm going to say, I'll go seven and a half. All right, Marvin. One dollar. I mean, eight and a half. (laughs) Eight and a half. Paulie. Nine. Alabama is a 16-and-a-half-point favorite. Oh, dang. (laughs) Whoa. Dang. It was an exciting day for college football yesterday. I don't know if it was a good day for college football. It felt like it was because you got some big personalities involved in this. Saban calls out A&M for buying recruits, and then Jimbo Fisher calls out Nick Saban. Why don't you check into his background Fisher said Saban needs to be slapped for lying and hinting that, you know, they have questionable track record in terms of recruiting. Fisher says, check Saban. They worked together from 2000 to 2004 at LSU. He worked on his staff. Uh, Saban and uh, the Tide don't take kindly to being disrespected. 2016, Jim Harbaugh and Saban got into that public disagreement. Remember the um, satellite football camps? Alabama then went on to embarrass Michigan in their next matchup. LSU, similar fate in 2020. LSU beats Alabama in 2019. Video surfaced of Ed Orgeron at LSU mocking the Tide's famous slogan, next season Alabama beat LSU 55-17. Texas A&M's good program. Can't be certain what will happen when they meet in October, but if history's any indication, Nick Saban may get the last word on this. But there was a lot of fallout from this yesterday. There were a lot of interesting comments about this. And I'm going to take you back to Saban and what he said. Now, I'm going to try to take this chronologically just so I can give you my thoughts on how this all unfolded. Here is Saban yesterday. This was from Wednesday. He was in front of uh, Booster's businessmen in Alabama, Birmingham, and had this to say about Texas A&M. 
We were second in recruiting last year. A&M was first. A&M bought every player on their team, made a deal for name, image, and like. All right, we didn't buy one player. All right, but I don't know if we're going to be able to sustain that in the future because more and more people are doing it. That's the tail end of a very long answer. What Nick Saban is saying, now this is my opinion, he is saying to his boosters, we got to do what AM is doing. We got to buy these players. I don't think he's critical of AM. I think AM is, you know, they took advantage of the loophole. But I think, you know, when, when this is in the room, it's about Alabama football and it's about boosters and we need to do this. And you, you don't say those things and think, well, it's going to get out of the building here. And then Jimbo Fisher is going to hear that. Well, Jimbo Fisher heard it, and he took it personally. And he had this to say about Nick Saban. The narcissist in him doesn't allow those things to happen. And it's ridiculous But when, when he's not on top. And the parody in college football he's been talking about, go talk to coaches who coach for him. You'll find out all the parody. Go dig into wherever he's been. You can find out anything. And it's a shame that you've got to sit here and defend 17-year-old kids and families. And Texas A&M, because we do things right, we're always going to do things right. But we're, not, we're always going to be here. Okay, I understand what Jimbo Fisher is saying. Because he's saying, hey, did, is he accusing us of doing something illegal? And buying sounds illegal. The name, image, and likeness is not illegal. And Jimbo Fisher is probably saying, look, you may not like the loophole, but we did it, and we did it better than anybody else. Nick Saban is saying to his congregation, hey, we got to do the same thing. He, he, he stopped just short of saying we need to do the same thing. If he says that, then I don't think you get Jimbo Fisher as upset as he was. But Jim, Jimbo Fisher did open up a bigger story in my mind because all of a sudden you're going, well, wait a minute here. What's he saying about Coach Saban? You were on his staff. 2000 to 2004, what exactly uh, did you guys do? Were you part of this? Jimbo says he never lies. Well, let me ask you the question, Coach. You part of anything that was illegal? What did Coach Saban do? Did he, did he not do it when you were there? So it felt like now all of a sudden this is open, open for season. Um, or open season, I should say. He uh, then went on to had he had this to say about grown men. There are no violations. There are nothing wrong. It's the second time we've had to do this with grown men who don't get their way and want to pout, throw a fit, and act up. Just go ask all the people who work for him. You'll know exactly what he's about. All right. Now, that, that's, that's where you take it. It's personal. Now it's really personal. Now it's on. This feels like there's an old beef that's there. And... Uh, here is uh, Jimbo talking about soliciting money. And what's funny, in that talk, right before he said that about us, wasn't he soliciting funds from the crowd? It's amazing, wasn't it? To the left, Rob. Well, when you walk on water, I guess, don't matter. In my opinion, he is saying, we need to do this. Then you bring Deion Sanders in this and saying, hey, Deion paid for this guy. And then Deion's like, no, no. And Deion is in a really, I thought Deion was the grown-up. Uh, you know, when you had the uh, last at bats, Dion had the last at bat. And he was saying, hey, I respect Nick Saban, but he lied. And I want to have a conversation 
publicly. He goes, you can't say something publicly and then you want to apologize privately. And he said, we didn't do anything wrong. And uh, even Travis Henry, the recruit that was supposed to go to Florida State, he said, uh, I don't know where this million dollar uh, NIL deal is. My mom lives in a three-bedroom house with five children. We don't have that money. There's a lot going on here. And, and Dion also said, be careful here, guys, because I've been on both sides of this. Not you guys. I've been a highly recruited player. I know that there are bag men. Like, the bag is now name, image, and likeness. They just dressed it up. Like, it's a Louis Vuitton bag. Used to be just a bag. Like, it's as legal as marijuana, it feels like. Now you're allowed to do this. Dion's saying, be careful here, guys, because I was recruited, and I know what I was offered. And now I'm on the other side of this as a head coach. But I do believe, listening to Saban, he's saying to his boosters, we have to do the same thing. I was also told by a source yesterday, I said, you know, give me some ideas about the money that's being thrown around. He said, if you're a five-star uh, quarterback, five-star recruit, you start at seven figures. You stat of the day. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, okay. If you're a five-star recruit as, as a quarterback, the starting price is $1 million. Uh, no, no, no. I was also told that there is a recruit, and I don't know if he's signed yet, and the asking price is $8 million. <laughs> Let's go. $8 million. Get it. I don't know when you get it. I don't know how you get it, but that's where we are. And you have grown men acting like this. And then the grown-up in the room was Dion. He's like, nope. Uh, I still got great, great respect for Coach Saban, but uh, he's got to. We got to have this conversation publicly because he called me out publicly. And uh, and it, look, Nick Saban did walk it back. He had this to say. This is later yesterday on ESPN. I really wasn't saying that anybody did anything illegal and use a name, image, and likeness. I, I, I didn't say that. That, that. that was something that was assumed by what I said, which is not really what I meant, nor was it what I said. So there's nothing illegal about doing this. It's the system that allows right. you to do it, and that's the issue that I have. I think what happened is you can be frustrated with the system, but you point out you lost out on the number one recruiting class because they bought everybody. If he, if he said... Hey, A&M used the loophole, name, image, and likeness. We need to do the same thing. I don't think Jimbo Fisher goes nuclear. But he tried to apologize to both. They didn't take his phone calls. But I do think that's a fair apology in what he's saying. I don't think he's calling out A&M as cheaters. I think he's just saying, look at what they did, and they spent all this money. We have to do the same thing. That's just my take on it. Um and it felt like that was Dion's take as well. Yes, Tom. He could have avoided saying A&M altogether. I'm sure people can infer who the top recruiting class was. He could have really been extra careful by saying other schools are doing A, B, and C. Once you start mentioning specific schools, that opens up the whole deal. I don't think this was a planned speech. I don't think he was going, uh, hey, I got uh, something to say, and then I'll take your questions. He was taking questions. These businessmen were asking, I think, 
hey, AM, number one recruiting class. How did that happen? Yeah, Paul. You said uh, a certain quarterback from high school may get $8 million. Yeah. Trevor Lawrence got $7 million his first year with the Jaguars. Yeah. <laughs> hey, it's th- this is the price. Price that, you know, right now, <laughs> at least this year, that's what I was told yesterday. Yes, yeah, Seaton. How many of these kids are going to take a pay cut when they go to the NFL? I know. That's wild. We talked about this. Uh, Bryce Young made more money on the books last year than Jalen Hurts did with the Eagles. It's amazing. This is what's going on. And once again, that's my source telling me that this is a big-time recruit, and uh, he heard that the asking price was $8 million. Yeah, Marv. They're doing the right thing because, look, most of these college stadiums are bigger than NFL stadiums. So it just sounds about right. NFL stadiums, 70,000, 80,000. SEC stadiums, 110, yeah. 148,000 million. <laughs> 148,000 million? Oh, I'm sorry. Just like 100,000. Sorry. Oh, okay. Yeah, Paul. But if you look at and I don't know what team you were talking about there or what quarterback you're talking about there with the 8 million. If that guy works out, it's worth it. If you look, and I'm not accusing anybody of anything, how did Cam Newton work out for Auburn Athletics? And there's a lot of rumors about what he did or did not get to go there. There's no proof, but... They were the winners, and, and that's back when it was not legal. Now that it's legal, it's, it's worth it. We reached out to everybody here. Uh, we also reached out to Lane Kiffin. Lane Kiffin was going to come on, but the commissioner of the SEC asked him not to comment on Nick Saban, Jimbo Fisher situation. I think all the coaches. I like how the SEC, the, uh, the commissioner, Greg Sankey, he reprimanded Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher. Publicly. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that out of all of this, and then Nick Saban goes, yeah, I got reprimanded, too. What the commissioner said? Yeah. I got- oh, man. Might have really crossed the line now. Yeah. I don't know what that means, you got reprimanded. But uh, Lane Kiffin was, was going to join us, but uh, the commissioner said he's not allowed to. We'll uh, get to phone calls coming up. We'll settle on a poll question. We'll recap what happened with the Celtics rolling the heat. You got game two, Mavs, Warriors coming up tonight. Thanks for listening to the Dan Patrick Show podcast. Be sure to catch us live every weekday morning, 9 to noon Eastern or 6 to 9 Pacific on Fox Sports Radio. Find your local station for the Dan Patrick Show at foxsportsradio.com or stream us live every day on the iHeartRadio app by searching FSR. Or stream us live on the Peacock app. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. 
So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Attention all wrestling aficionados. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. This is Freddie Prince Jr., and I am beyond thrilled to announce that our wrestling extravaganza is back, and joining me once again is the one and only Jeff Dye. Get ready as we highlight the most jaw-dropping matches, dissect the fiercest feuds, and uncover the latest twists and turns in the world of pro wrestling. We're dusting off our legendary side quests and unleashing a barrage of brand new segments that will keep you guys on the edge of your seat like our talks on unsanctioned Thursdays. Freddie, you know we gotta give the people what they want. This season, we have an all-star lineup of special guests who are gonna be gracing our podcast, bringing with them their own unique insights, experiences, and all of that in the world of pro wrestling and beyond. Whether you're a seasoned wrestling veteran or a fresh-faced newcomer, we promise an experience like no other. So buckle up, wrestling fans. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including... Actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. More phone calls coming up, including J.J. Reddick's comments about Bob Cousy. Bob Cousy has responded how old is Bob Cousy? He's 93. Unbelievable. 93 and a half. Because J.J. Reddick says Bob Cousy played against plumbers and firemen. And Bob Cousy has responded to that. Damn. What a great week. You know, it's one of those where you go, okay, we got the PGA Championship. Then all of a sudden you got, you know, Jimbo Fisher and Nick Saban and Dion. Now I got J.J. Reddick and Bob Cousy. And I've got Alan Shipnuck. He has been covering golf for 25-plus years for Sports Illustrated. He has written another book, and I think this is eight books that he's written. It's called Phil the Rip Roaring, an unauthorized biography of golf's most colorful superstar. Available online wherever books are sold. Alan, good to talk to you again. When's the last time you spoke to Phil Mickelson? Well, it was earlier this year, uh, you know, even after we had our, our fraught phone call around Thanksgiving, where he told me all his secrets about Saudi Arabia, uh, we were still in contact. You know, Phil was up at the Yellowstone Club skiing, 
And, uh, you know, Phil never opens his mouth without an agenda. So he's continuing to try to sort of work the angles and uh, influence myself and other reporters on, on Saudi Arabia and some other things involving the tour. So uh, we haven't we haven't spoken since since February for sure, though. OK, it's unauthorized. But Phil still cooperated to do an interview. Did he did he know what the interview was for when you sat down with him or spoke to him over Thanksgiving? Yeah, there, it's been a whole journey because I actually went to Phil three times going back to the 2020 PGA Championship and asked him to do interviews for the book. And over about a five month period, he molded over and ultimately he said no, and which is his prerogative. And I've had so much access to Phil and and his the people around him for so many years that that was fine. I just plunged into writing the book and it was due December 1st. So a week before the book was due, it's basically done. At this point, I'm just adding another coat of polish. He decided to ring me up. And I think in the final analysis, he just couldn't help himself. Um, you know, it's been said many times about Phil is that he has to be the smartest guy in the room. And it, he just, it bothered him that he hadn't told me that he, he was smarter than Jay Monahan, the PGA tour commissioner, and he was smarter than Greg Norman, the, the front man for the Saudi effort, and that he he was working both sides of the street, and he had used all this leverage to get all these concessions he wanted, and uh, so yeah, he called me, and um, it was I'm still somewhat baffled, but in the context of you know Phil has spent his whole career sort of manipulating the media, and he never opens his mouth without an agenda, and I think he in the end he just couldn't help himself. He he had to try and get in my ear one one time before I actually sent the book in. If he doesn't say this about the Saudis, what's the headline about this book? That's a good question because, and you know, I've often thought like maybe it would have been better if he hadn't called me because it certainly has overshadowed a lot of the other material in the book, which, you know, my goal was, was to write a, a really lively, fun, anecdotal, balanced look at a very complicated and contradictory character. And, you know, I think I did that. Like I said, the book was done when he called me. Um, and so, there, there was already some juicy bits in there about his gambling, about the bust up with Bones, his career long caddy, about Billy Walters. Like there was already enough energy around this book that um, there would have been other headlines. But, uh, you know, certainly this Saudi stuff was, was going to blow no matter what. You know, it, it was it was happening and Phil was in the middle of it. So this was going to complicate his legacy either way. But um what made our whole conversation so interesting and I guess so fraught is that, you know, Phil said the quiet parts out loud. You know, the golfer's been going to Saudi Arabia and taking their money now for a long time. And if you stay on script, you can get away with it. And you say, I'm just here to grow the game and I'm an athlete, not a politician. And everybody rolls their eyes. They know it's total BS, but you can get away with it. But Phil was, it was the few, you know, the rare athletes actually acknowledge the Saudi atrocities and yet he so callously dismissed them. And there was a shock value in that, in those words. But I think ultimately what, what got him in trouble and sent him into this exile was that he admitted to, you know, these sneaky backroom dealings where he was helping the tour, the Saudi tour actually get off the ground. And he was almost, he was almost acting as a de facto plane commissioner. And in that scenario, he's actively subverting the interests of the PGA tour. And what, what so the words have gotten a lot of attention. It was really the actions is what got him in trouble with the tour and with his colleagues. The gambling part, $40 million over a four-year period, is that accurate? Yeah, yeah, that's reporting from the book. And everyone's always known that Phil's a gambler. Like, it's been part of his brand. And when he's won, like when he cashed that Super Bowl ticket on the Ravens and made over half a million dollars, he loves to crow about it. But 
you also know there's been some heavy losses because it showed up in court documents in press clippings and he's been he's been linked to some shady characters through the years but is this and casino gambling alan or betting on games mo mostly sports betting but he, do, he does love baccarat and uh, in the casinos and he, he will go to the casino sports books but uh, it it's, it seems that it's mostly just making bets through you know bookies and uh, you know there's there a whole controversy the month after the pga championship last year where phil was linked to this mobbed up bookie in detroit um that that built him out of half a million dollars and, and phil took umbrage to the uh the detroit newspaper bringing this to light and and threatened ne never to play in that tournament again and so there's there's always been this low roar about phil's gambling but we didn't really know the numbers and you know as part of this billy walters insider trading case he was subject to this forensic audit by... explain billy walters to the audience who's not familiar oh, yeah <laughs> Billy Walters if you is, can is, explain Billy Walters, yeah, here. yeah, I mean that could that that could be a long conversation. <laughs> Billy Walters is this this famous gambler, and in the 1980s, he was really the first guy to apply computer analysis to sports betting, and he started making money hand over fist. And he's also a legendary poker player. He's the kind of guy who'll walk into a casino and spend 36 hours playing roulette and walk out with three million dollars, which he famously did years ago. And he just has an incredible mind for gambling. And because of all his activities he's been subject to various indictments he'd always beat the rap which made him a folk hero in las vegas and he also loves golf you know he's played in pga tour pro-ams he won the the crosby clambake pro-am portion back in 2008 so he loves golf he loves gambling it was almost inevitable that him and phil uh, would cross paths and, and they became friends billy became a mentor and they became betting partners and there's been a lot of confusion about the role between phil and, and billy but um, Billy was not Phil's bookie. They were partners and it was advantageous for both of them because Phil suddenly had access to the best mind in sports betting. And, and now Billy had access to the people that Phil would bet through because Billy was often getting cut off from his own people because he was too good. And Phil was not too good. Like, um, and over time, uh, Phil would want to bet certain things that Billy thought were losers, but Billy would place the bet because he knew they were going to lose and it would keep him in good graces with the bookies. And sometimes he'd front that money and Phil ran up a tab essentially that, that ran at the millions of dollars with Billy that he owed him. And so now Billy Walters also loved to play the stock market as did Phil. Billy came into some, some information from um, involving Dean's Foods, just this random stock, but they were about to have a spinoff and the, the, the price was gonna spike. Billy made a big bet on this and so did Phil. And the question has always been, what exactly did Billy tell Phil and did, did Phil know that this information was tainted because it came from an insider at the company? And um, this exploded into a big SEC investigation and Billy Walters wound up going down the river. He got jail time. He was convicted on all the charges and Phil skated um, he, because of some, some very complex wrinkles in the law that I go into into the book. I won't, I won't bore your listeners with now, but Phil was not charged, but he was named as a relief defendant, which means he benefited from this bad information they could prove he knew that it was bad, but he had to give them the money back and ill-gotten gains is my new favorite term. So he had to give back over a million dollars to the government. And um, Billy has never forgiven Phil because he he feels like if, if Phil Mickelson had testified on his behalf, that would have helped Billy Walters and he may not have gone to jail. That's, you know, subject to debate. But in in, in, you know, in Billy's mind, uh, Phil sold them out. And and so now Billy Walters is writing this this his own his own book that's going to come out at the end of this year, early next year. Um, Whereas my intention was to write a very fair and balanced look 
uh, Phil Mickelson. Billy Walters is not a trained journalist. He doesn't care about that. Like he's got a vendetta and he's out to get a scalp. And so Phil is, is rightfully worried about what Billy is going to put in his book because Billy knows a lot of stuff. Yeah, I was told somebody who knows Billy, this could be a flamethrower. Like he's he's coming after Phil. I, I don't know if it's called this or there's a chapter. It's called it. Now it's my turn. And uh, I, <laughs> yeah. I think he's he's coming after Phil. We're talking Alan Shipnut. He is a, a golf writer. The book is Phil, the Rip Roaring and Unauthorized Biography of Golf's Most Colorful Superstar, available online wherever books are sold. I'm always curious why so many people love Phil Mickelson. What What is the charm? What is the magic? Well, it starts with he's, a, he's an extrovert, whereas, whereas Tiger's an introvert. So at, at a tournament, Tiger has that thousand-yard stare. He doesn't look anybody in the eye. He doesn't acknowledge their presence. It's almost like he's performing a solo in, in front of an, an empty theater, and he doesn't have to give anything more than that to the fans. You're just lucky to be watching him. And there's some truth to that because he was so transcendent. And in late period, Tiger, he's tried to give a little more back with the occasional nod, but it, it's very much he's, he's playing in, in, in a bubble. And but Phil loves the energy of the crowd and he looks him in the eye. He gives the goofy thumbs up. He waves to them. Um, he lets them in and he's performing for them and they feel that connection. And of course, Phil, you know, has signed more autographs over the last three decades than probably any human on the planet. Um, that's just part of his work day. It's like, he's going to punch the clock. I'm going to go sign autographs for an hour. And whether it's shameless brand building or whether he really loves the fans almost doesn't matter because the fans are still getting the autographs are still getting that connection. He's joking with them. So it starts on a very human level. Um, and then, you know, whereas Tiger was this, this Terminator, this machine with this perfectly sculpted body, you know, Phil has his, his flaws as a golfer and, you cannot, it's a high wire act. And it was more fun to watch because you never knew when he was going to you know, set himself on fire. And he looked like the fans. He was a little doughy. He was a little pudgy, you know, his clothes didn't fit quite right. And I think that some fans just related more to Phil, even though he is this, uh, you know, trans, transcendent talent. There was just this, this sense of, they can, you can't relate to Tiger. It was maniacal worth that and his ethic and his his ruthless excellence, but you know, Phil hitting these crazy ass shots and, 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 and losing tournaments, it, it just made him more relatable, more compelling on, on some levels. So, uh, and then there's, there's, you know, Phil's a rascal. Like he, he's a mischief maker. He loves to stir the pot and he loves, he loves to talk trash and he's always, he's always applying the needle and, and that's, that's fun too. Like it's, it's, there's a great quote in this book from Charles Barkley where, and he's one of the few people on the planet who's been close to both Tiger and Phil. And he says, you know, everyone in Tiger's orbit's uptight. They're, they're, they're afraid to say the wrong thing. And, and he's like under siege. And if you're with Phil, you're just going to have fun. Everybody's smiling and laughing. And like that. There's just more joy around Phil. And that's a pretty fundamental difference. And Phil would be gambling on the golf course, checking, you know, scores. He used to pick games on my radio show, Alan, years ago. And he I remember would, that he would call them mother-in-law bets where he would, he would, he would say to his mother-in-law, you should be betting on these games. And he was actually very good, but you're right. As a, as a former gambler, we only tell you when we win, we don't tell you when we lose. Help me understand Phil's not in the PGA, not in the masters. Whose decision do you think that was? Yeah, it's very nuanced. So after we dropped the excerpt from my book and, and, and Phil got himself in some very hot water and there was this very strong blowback, uh, partly because, as I said, you know, the, the sneakiness of subverting the PGA Tour. But also, I think he failed to understand that 
how emotional Saudi Arabia is as an issue. You know, that 15 of the 9-11 hijackers did come from Saudi Arabia. They did just assassinate a Washington Post journalist who was a resident of the United States. Like they are bad actors on the world stage and, and their money is very dirty. And I think Phil just thought he was being this cagey businessman who had had some leverage and, and was trying to cut some deals. And he didn't realize how distasteful Saudi Arabia is. To but a does lot of he people. need money, Alan? Well, that, that's one of the fundamental questions in all of this, because we know he's made a fortune in his, in his career, but how much has he kept when, you know, you lose $40 million across four years. And again, that's, that's what we know. We don't know what we don't know. There's, you, there's, there's other things in this book that suggest he's feeling financial pressure. You know, he, Phil sold his Gulfstream, which was like his fourth child. Everyone was shocked about that. And at the root of his bust up with, with Jim McKay, his caddy, was money you know that he owed bones almost a million dollars and you why wouldn't he just make him whole and even the, the billy walters stuff it comes down to phil owed billy walters money instead of just wiring it to him he had to he, he did this whole stock transaction that got him in trouble like again isn't he liquid enough just to pay off his debts you would just assume he was but we don't know everything about phil's finances we just have snapshots but when you put them together it, it suggests that um, he might be feeling more financial pressure than we could ever imagine, given what he's earned. But it's not what you make; it's what you keep. So, um, and that's that's been one of the one of the the fundamental questions in all this: is why is Phil chasing this Saudi money so hard? And you know, we we, we might have some insight into that through the book. So, yeah. Um, well, where do where do we see Phil surface? Does he play an event? Does he do a sit down interview? Right. What's next for Phil? Yeah, I mean, there is a there is a playbook, you know, for public figures when when they're they're trying to fight their way back. And you would assume that he would he would go sit on Oprah's couch, or maybe he'll come on your show, and and it would make sense to start telling his side of the story before he shows up at a tournament. But you know that when Phil put out that public statement in February, it was an absolute word salad. I mean, it it read like a midnight tweet storm, and it does not inspire confidence that he has the right people around him to guide him through this very complicated moment so and phil's stubborn i mean it, there's there's another quote in the book from peter costas who was living out in the desert and, and him and phil were friends and and, and costas was kind of this low-key swing instructor and he said phil has always surrounded himself by yes men and he's never in his life listened to anything from anybody except occasionally from amy and so you know that's phil's personality he's a very double down personality and you see that on the golf course the last hole of the U.S. Open at Wingfoot, we want to hit a hero shot when he should have just laid up. And you obviously see it in his betting life. And so now are we going to see it here? And this this first big controversy that's that's really sidelined him from golf. Is he going to try and double down and prove that he was he was right? And therefore, he is going to go to the Saudis and take their money and go all in with the Saudis, um, which I think would be a colossal mistake from a public relations standpoint. But if he needs the money, yeah. you know, they're, they're offering him into the nine figures. Uh, it's hard to say no to that. But... Um, so there's there's some big things on the horizon as far as the schedule goes. To answer your question. The first Saudi event is in early June, and um, PGA Tour members to go play in an overseas event, they have to get a release from the tour, and it's almost like asking your spouse for permission to cheat on them. And the the tour said no, and so now it sets up this this intrigue. Or any tour members going to defy that edict, and are they going to bust the blockade, and they're going to go over and play in that Saudi event. And if that happens, they're probably going to get suspended. And or they almost surely will get suspended. And then it's going to set up a court battle on antitrust. And this this could reshape the entire landscape of professional golf. 
So there's a lot at stake. And I think at one point, Phil was kind of willing to be the first guy out of the foxhole, but now maybe he's waiting to see what these other players are going to do. So he may, he may or may not play that first Saudi event. The next week is the U.S. Open, which we all know is the missing piece in Phil's resume. And uh, he's now back in the field by virtue of his PGA Championship win. So early to mid-June is, is when things are going to, Phil's going to have to make a decision. If he sits both of those out, then we know this self-imposed exile could last a long time. Alan, good luck with the book. Great to talk to you again. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dan. Alan Shipnuck. Uh, he's been covering golf for over 25 years. The book is Phil, the rip-roaring and unauthorized biography of golf's most colorful superstar, available online wherever books are sold. Yeah, this other book that's going to come out, it's by Billy Walters and speaking to, you know, the, the inner circle there that connects Billy Walters, this gambler who went to prison, insider trading, and Phil, there's uh, there's some crossover there, people who know both. And I was told uh, recently, Billy Walters coming after Phil with his book. Thanks for listening to the Dan Patrick Show podcast. Be sure to catch us live every weekday morning, 9 until noon Eastern, 6 to 9 Pacific on Fox Sports Radio. And you can find us on the iHeartRadio app at FSR or stream us live on the Peacock app. Mike check. Mike check. Do you want exclusive insight from the biggest names in the sports game? What's good? This is national champion and former pro baller Chris Johnson. Let me tell you a little bit about my new series, KJ Live. KJ Live is the only show featuring me going one-on-one with the brightest basketball minds on the planet to get the real. And when I say real, I mean that real. I got legendary Hall of Famers, elite coaches, and the top basketball insiders bringing you a unique perspective on all things hoops culture that you will not find anywhere else. So make your next move your best move. And tap in with me on KJ Live, wherever you get your podcast from. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. 
With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Attention all wrestling aficionados. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. This is Freddie Prince Jr., and I am beyond thrilled to announce that our wrestling extravaganza is back, and joining me once again is the one and only Jeff Dye. Get ready as we highlight the most jaw-dropping matches, dissect the fiercest feuds, and uncover the latest twists and turns in the world of pro wrestling. We're dusting off our legendary side quests and unleashing a barrage of brand new segments that will keep you guys on the edge of your seat like our talks on unsanctioned Thursdays. Freddie, you know we gotta give the people what they want. This season, we have an all-star lineup of special guests who are gonna be gracing our podcast, bringing with them their own unique insights, experiences, and all of that in the world of pro wrestling and beyond. Whether you're a seasoned wrestling veteran or a fresh-faced newcomer, we promise an experience like no other. So buckle up, wrestling fans. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including... Actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. The book is Swimming with the Blowfish, Hootie, Healing, and One Hell of a Ride, Jim Sonufeld, Hootie and the Blowfish drummer, songwriter, the book comes out next month, and Sony joins us on the program. Why write a book? <laughs> I was feeling dangerous. I uh, Honestly, I think being an old guy, I wanted to see if there was something meaningful in my life, and I thought there was that I could share that might help some other people, maybe help them understand the trials and tribulations and glories and victories of being in a big rock band, but more so to tell about how I got to that place, how my bandmates to some degree got to that place. And, and then also sort of expose some of the, the downfalls that can happen in that life of entertainment, which I, which I personally fell into in a uh, deep way. But uh, I got lucky too. The, the, the story, if you will, has a nice ending. It has a nice, it was wrapped up in a nice bow by the fact that we got to have a huge reunion tour in 2019 to affirm, uh, yeah, that there were people out there that still had some love for Hootie. When did you know you were in trouble? I had a chance to uh, accept what was troublesome in the early 2000s. I heard a few uh, crew members some guys which you know personally, they were behind a curtain. They didn't know I was on the other side of the curtain. And they were talking about someone that they were worried about. Uh, this guy's partying really hard. He's 
prone to some uh, uh, temperament. He's has these violent outbursts where he's hanging out with weird people. And I literally thought, huh, I need to find out who they're talking about because I'm one of the four bosses here. I employ all these people. And I got close to that curtain. And when they said, yeah, we just don't know who's going to be the one that's going to have to talk to Sony about his problem. And I was devastated. I literally could not believe they were talking about me. The worry, the anxiety was about me. They were worried. And, and so what did I do? I had all the information I needed to say, man, this is great. You guys are right. My life is careening out of control. But no, I'm a real addict. I dove into, I need to hide it better. I need to figure a way out that they're not going to be worried. And, uh, but still do my drinking, still do my drugs, still hang out with whoever I wanted to. So that was my chance. I suffered for about four more years after that before I came to reality. But you don't know what you're looking for. You know, those on the outside, I didn't know. Like you hit it pretty well. And I was around the band for a long time, a lot of those tour stops. And I remember one time in Boston and I said to Mark, the lead guitar player, and then Darius, the lead singer, I said, where's Sony? And they go, back in his room. And I never, under I didn't know what that meant. I thought, oh, well, good for him. Like, he's not at the bar. I thought, maybe you're just boring. And then I, I remember pressing those guys a little bit, and they say, no, he goes back there, and he drinks out of the mini bar. Was that accurate? Absolutely. When someone who's sick in the thinking I was and the actions I was, if there wasn't people to participate with me, if I couldn't get the circus uh, revved up around me or I didn't like what it looked like because I was doing things that I wasn't supposed to be doing, there's always a hotel room. There's always isolation. And, uh, you know, I had the, the either benefit or curse. I don't know how you look at it, but I could be the crazy guy in Boston or the isolated guy because the fact is, in 24 hours, I was going to be in a different town, USA, and then another town, and then another town. So my worries or my uh, path of carnage, I was able to leave it behind night after night after night, thinking I'd escaped any consequences until they all caught up with me. But also, you, at some point, do you embrace the lifestyle or does the lifestyle embrace you? Or maybe it starts out that you embrace it and then it, you realize that it's got the hold on you, not the other way around. I was very flexible, Dan. <laughs> I was willing to wear different masks. I was willing to uh, do anything to, you know, uh, fall into the lifestyle or fall away from it if I could successfully do what I wanted to do, which was mainly get a drink up to my mouth or find something to help me stay awake to get to drink longer. And so, yeah, I mean, I, camouflage is, is an alcoholic's sort of uh, – trick. And so if I could camouflage, become slightly different for different people, I would do that. Very unhealthy though in the end. Did you drink? Were you drunk on stage? I never entered drunk. And I, you know, again, an addict or, or someone that suffers in, in the way I do, we're not necessarily stupid or, or uh, even misled uh, or we don't, it's not like we lack self-will. I'll do whatever I can to, to succeed in, in not getting caught, but getting what I need. So no, enter the stage like you've done with us before. Shot a Jaeger, shot a beam. You get on there clean. It's a lot of focus. It's a lot of, you want to be clean. 
uh, and that just began. That was like my my ramp into oblivion. So by the end of the show, I'd have a good buzz going. But what looks better from the audience than a bunch of guys that are out there really letting it letting it go, sweating, having fun? Doesn't look scripted, and ours was never scripted. You know, that's that's a good way to do two hours. And as the son of an alcoholic. I know that you guys are very good at hiding things, or at least you think you are until you're not. And then everybody notices what you think they're not noticing. I just wonder like the interventions, how many times did people try to kind of grab you and say, dude, you know, you're giving it all away. Oh goodness. There's nothing worse than, than having an intervention, even by people that love you. There's uh when you feel the walls closing in and you know the talk is coming, <laughs> you squirm, you know. And for the last few years, I knew uh, as my consequences became a little more public, at least in our group, I knew they were coming. And uh, most of them, I think, done with love. Uh, but deny, deny, deny is sort of the game. I'm okay or I'm, I'm working on that. And the book tells as much how different band members uh, in their love and worry uh, spoke to me. And it, was, it wasn't until my last intervention that came from a little bit of a, a place I wasn't expecting that actually made me think a little deeply. And I was sober a month later. Wildest bands you toured with? <laughs> you know, the, not that I even saw them in action, but I saw the results of their actions and it was Van Halen because we got on this crazy tour that uh, a couple of festivals in Germany, we were the only not hard rock band. And we were, of course, it was a big 10 hour festival. We were probably the second band playing to a few people in Munich stadium. Hey, it's like 90% empty. It's Hold glory. my hand. <laughs> so, we, get, we share a big backstage with all these other hard rock bands, including Van Halen. And I'm thrilled. This is my entrance into hard rock was Van Halen in high school. So I see them in their trailer and here's Eddie walking out from his trailer and he's a little gimpy and he's a little slow. I'm like, what's up with him? And he gets to the bottom and out comes a cane. I'm like, whoa, that's not good. He's got a cane. Right behind him is Alex, his brother, the drummer, a hero of mine. And he's looking this way when he gets out, and then he looks this way. I'm like, why is he physically looking so weird? He gets closer, he's got a huge neck brace. So here's like two guys looking like they just walked out of a uh, war zone, and they're supposed to be my heavy metal heroes. I'm like, is that what I'm in for? Is that where I'm going? Because this was only the mid to late 90s. I was still partying without as many consequences. But I thought, if that's the end game here, I got to get some new health insurance. Also, when they think of Hootie and the Blowfish, they always think, well, you guys are just nice guys and never part. When I would tell people, I said, those guys can get after it. And they're like, no, they can't. Like, what do you guys have, like light beer or something? I go, no, I, I don't think so. I think there's some other things going on here. I mean, nice. you're not Motley Crue, but, you know, felt like you guys got after it. Um, maybe more than, you know, America thought. Nice guys can get out of control too. And nice guys can live out on the edge and even have some consequences. I don't know, honestly, how we escaped 
the headlines. We were probably a little lucky, if anything, that way, where some of our actions didn't end up on the front page or uh, there wasn't a bust up uh, or anything happening. It's a little lucky, honestly. We pre- predated cell phones, so there wasn't a bunch of people when yeah. we were at the height taking pictures backstage. That would have been a whole different story. So we're yeah, a little lucky, if anything. He's Jim Sonefeld, the uh, drummer for Hootie and the Blowfish. The book comes out next month, Swimming with the Blowfish, Hootie Healing and One Hell of a Ride. Um, what, do you remember the day you became famous? <laughs> the band? In my mind? <laughs> oh, you know, the day I had an inkling that things were happening was probably sitting on the stage late night with David Letterman. It was a place where I said, oh, wait we're being beamed into the living rooms of millions of people with our little song, hold my hand. This is, and I was nervy. I saw the red lights saying record coming on. And I was, and I talk about this in the book to be sitting on that stage where the Beatles sat in the the year of my birth, 1964 was like stupendous. And I sensed like, this is, this could take us to a place we've never, ever gone. Um, And it did. That was the, that was the turn where, uh, you go from playing clubs and theaters to millions of homes. You, you can't deny, as uh, you like to say, you can't deny us. Uh, and it worked. They liked the song. Radio stations played it. People supported us. We did great videos. Thank you, Dan. And Yeah, and, and Sony Road, hold my hand, just to let everybody know. I mean, you, you did change the lives of those guys. Without that song, I don't, there might be Hootie and the Blowfish, but there wouldn't be Hootie and the Blowfish worldwide. <laughs> it's always, it's always good to come into a audition for a band with something in your back pocket. I'm not going to arrive empty handed. So I had been writing songs for a few years, none of it worth anything. I, I was the king of writing songs that weren't great, that weren't working, that weren't catchy until one day it was with three chords. And yeah, I arrived to my audition with the band uh, sort of, here's this, here's this tune. What do you guys think? Meekly, I wasn't trying to play him, but I honestly hadn't played it for anybody else. So I didn't know if it was uh, going to be a great song. And they, they looked at each other like, okay, you can stay. <laughs> um, and, and you, you found somebody uh, who helped you here. Uh, so the former wife of lead guitar player, Mark, is your wife. And I, I, like, I, I was never bored when I was around you guys. They'd go, uh, oh, you know what's happening now? And I go, what? And then it'd be, you know, this over here, this over here, this over here. I go, wait, wait, Sony is dating Mark's Y, X, Y. Yeah, yeah. And I remember talking to you about it and go, yeah, yeah, it's cool. It's cool. But she helped save you and maybe vice versa through all of this. Well, certainly. I mean, we, we, May look normal on the outside, but if you ever look behind the curtain, you know, Dan, you stood at my first wedding. And, and, and the twists that come are not always in the headlines, but there's nothing weirder than what we've managed to do with my uh, and Laura's marriage 14 years now to be successful as parents, all of us, exes and Laura and I with five kids. It's It's been a victory, but uh, one nobody saw coming. Uh, yeah, certainly it's a great twist for the book to see an ending uh, that is you never see coming. Laura, in fact, was the one I talk about my last intervention being the one that 
was the only one that made me think. And it was Laura, then Laura Bryan, that gave me that intervention. And it's because she came to it from a way that she wasn't demanding answers. She wasn't doing what a lot of interventions end up doing, which is telling me how bad my actions are, how I got to get my junk together, how I am disappointing so many people. I knew that, but she asked it in a different way saying, do you value yourself? Do you want something better for you in your life and your family? And she, after that intervention, uh, I walked away thinking, and it took me about 30 or 40 more drunks to go. I do value my life. In fact, if I don't start value, valuing it with an action, I'm going to be dead in a few weeks because my alcohol and drug intake was very high. I just happened to be playing it off better than the most, the average alcoholic. It's pretty amazing. I mentioned this earlier in the show that I've known you so long, but I didn't really know you until <laughs> probably the last two years. I feel like I, I, I know you now, whereas before you were just the drummer in the band. And I just always had a good time every time I saw you. But I don't know if I ever invested in you because I don't know if you allowed people to invest in you because you kind of had that mask on. When it gets dark and my life was getting dark due to my uh, substance abuse, you're in the dark. I, I'm not wanting to shine for other people. I want to be isolated. And I became isolated. And, yeah, it was a different thing from when we were first hanging out you know, playing basketball backstage as young men, probably in our 30s, uh, you know, shirts off and, and there wasn't a worry in the world. You know, it's if you fast forward, let's see what whatever that was 95 yeah. to 2005, there's, there's what 10 years can do to change your life. And, and I look back with fondness on the whole trip. Honestly, the, the book, talks about the darkness, but I also wanted to celebrate the joy, the fact that though we worked hard, we never could have seen what was coming ahead of time. And uh, our lives changed and our children's lives changed as well uh, forever. So uh, I wanted and to And I remember a when we were in Glasgow, because I went to London, Scotland, uh, Ireland, and uh, it was underground. I don't know how many people there, a couple of thousand. Yeah, but uh, Sony would always take his shirt off when he was drumming, and then I made sure I caught his attention on the side of the stage, and I had my shirt off with my my white khakis, and uh, had some good times. <laughs> some good times. You know where where were the video cameras? That was that? my fortieth birthday, and my wife said, "Yes, go on tour with Hootie and the Blowfish." Well, then you're a lot older than I thought, Dan. I yes, thought, I yeah, am. I yeah. No, you look a lot older than I do, but you've done more damage to your body, Sony. <laughs> you ought to see the inside. <laughs> no, that's not pretty. Um, good luck with the book. And uh, hopefully we'll see you guys back on, on the road one of these days. Sony has a uh, latest single called It's Good to Get Back. Where's that available? Spotify or any of your streaming channels. Uh, check it out. It's good old rock and roll. Thank you, buddy. God bless you. That's Sony, uh, Jim Sonefeld, Hootie and the Blowfish. Swimming with the Blowfish, Hootie Healing, and One Hell of a Ride comes out next month. It's Freddie Prinze Jr. and Jeff Dye back in the ring. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. Hey, Jeff. 
Are you ready to rumble our way into an all-new season of Wrestling with Freddy? You better believe I have. I've been practicing my body slams, and I'm jacked. All right, don't go injuring yourself now. We'll be highlighting the best stories and matches of the week in wrestling from AEW, WWE, and have one-on-one talks with the best talents in the world of pro wrestling. Listen to Wrestling with Freddy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Mini Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.